Welcome to the Building Books Podcast. I'm Glenn Yeffitz, publisher of Ben Bella Books, and on this podcast, we will talk about ideas, authors, and how publishing really works. Well, I'm delighted and thrilled to have today Mike Shatskin, uh, someone I've admired and whose blog I've followed for many years. Uh, he's been involved with publishing for nearly 50 years. He's the founder and CEO of the Ideological Company, co-founder of Publishers Lunch Conferences, and co-founder of Logical Marketing. As I said, I've been a faithful reader of Mike's blog for many years, and I can attest that his insights into the dynamics of publishing industry are a must-read for anyone in publishing. So I'm thrilled that he agreed to be on the podcast. Happy to be here. Thank you, Mike. All right, well, a lot of issues I want to get into, but let's just start with a little bit about your background, how you got into publishing. I was born into it. Uh, it was it was really sort of the path of least resistance. My father was a publishing executive working at Viking Press when I was born, working at Doubleday for 10 years that took me to my early teens, working at uh, Macmillan through high school, McGraw-Hill through college, and then Lynn started his own business just about the time I graduated from college. So after I got done with the McGovern campaign, I went to work for him. I don't know if anybody wow. else anybody else would have had me or not. We had two service companies. One was a production company that did the did served as a production department for publishers. Right. And the other one was a was a sort of a forerunner of all the distribution companies called the Two Continents Publishing Group. And we were a we had a sales force, a warehouse, uh, the whole distribution mm-hmm. setup. Uh, on behalf, at that time, largely of UK publishers that wanted to do some direct publishing in the States rather than selling rights. That was sort of the the, sh- the shift that was taking place in the 70s when we were doing this. So I got trained by my dad. And then when those businesses didn't quite make it because the, uh, the all sorts of reasons why small businesses don't make it. Right. Um, and starting in 1979, I found myself uh, very knowledgeable um, and about a lot of things and somewhat connected because my father had had a career in publishing, so I knew a lot of people. <clears throat> and I've been gainfully unemployed ever since. <laughs> now, what do you focus on these days? Well, I tried to shift my focus away from publishing to climate change about two years ago. I remember reading about that. Yeah, I'm not being as successful as I wanted to be. I keep... A number of publishing projects keep uh, sticking their sticking their heads above above the parapet, at, but most of them have to do with helping people navigate the new opportunities that are available in publishing. It, it, what's changed is that you don't need to have an organization anymore. Every piece of publishing that is scalable is available for rent. Right. So what you do need is a manuscript and a vision. It helps if you have some cash, although you can probably even get by without much of that. And you need to understand digital marketing, which is um, something that nobody even thought about 10 years ago. So, But all of those things together mean that anybody with a manuscript and a certain amount of traction in any vertical area of interest can actually publish successfully using a variety of tools, including those prominently, those that are offered by Ingram and Amazon. So am I hearing you argue that publishers are obsolete now? No, they're not obsolete. Matter of fact, the the publishing function is required. And as a matter of fact, that's one of the things which I think is still part of the unpaved road. So what Ingram and others can provide is all of the things that cost a lot of money and require overhead. So the warehouse, the billing system, the sales force, all of the those components. Right. But they require direction. As a matter of fact, I remember Ingram did a book, and I'm going to blank on the name of the publisher of the book, that was, I don't know, $650. Okay. And um, they sold several thousand copies of it. So it was a phenomenal, a phenomenal commercial success. And Ingram was very proud of having provided all the capabilities, including the printing capabilities to make it all happen. But when you investigated it a little further, you found out that the self-publisher 
hired Bruce Harris, who is a rough contemporary of mine and a very experienced publishing brain who uh, created Harmony Books for Crown in the 1960s, was president of the Random House Sales Organization for 20 years. And Bruce was the guy who figured out that the books, if I'm getting the price right, should be $650, not $500, not $800. Right. What what should be in it, what the target markets were, um, all of the things that require publishing expertise to aim and channel and utilize the the resources that Ingram has in order to execute. And that function is is always going to be necessary. And the single book publisher does not, generally speaking, going to have that. But what is different is that a publisher does not need to own all of the means of production and distribution and invest in them at fixed cost. Everything is is variable cost and everything is scalable. Now, what that does mean to the to the commercial publishers, which is not good news, is that you don't have to have commercial intent anymore. There are individual authors that are more interested in their fame than they are in money. There are cause organizations of all sorts that are from the AARPs and uh, of the world to chambers right. of commerce, right? Of course. right? Who can who have reasons to want to publish things that are not primarily commercial or financial? But but does that really hurt publishers? Because that stuff is not that commercial. No, many. Well, first of all, you can't read two books at once. So right. even so, even if uh, at least not simultaneously, unless you have your <laughs> have your brain cleave. So while you're reading, you know, while a thousand non-commercial books come out and sell as many as 100 commercial books would have, whatever they do sell is occupying the brain and the budget of, of someone. Okay, so what's happening is that the business is getting bigger, but the business that's available for commercial exploitation is getting smaller. And that is something which I believe is inexorable. And in fact, if you think about it, I don't know if these models have changed, but when I was 25 years ago, Amacom, American Management Association, had a business book model that basically was, oh, you give speeches, you sell your books, you can sell your book at speeches. Right. We'd be glad to publish your book. Um, We'll give you a $3,000 advance. Of course, we want you to buy 5,000 copies over the course of the next two years at a 50% discount. But you'll have these books. You'll make money selling them at your speeches, and we'll make money publicizing them. And that business isn't there anymore. Because nobody's going to make that deal anymore when they can make the when they can do it themselves. They can get commercial distribution themselves. They don't have to guarantee five thousand copies purchased. They don't have to print any inventory, which they used to need a publisher to do for them, but they don't anymore because Ingram's got print on demand, so they don't even have to print an inventory. So. All of these opportunities where the publishers were essentially gatekeepers and you couldn't get into bookstores and you couldn't get into libraries and you couldn't get yourself available without a publisher to allow you through the gate. That's no longer true. So that's that changes the landscape considerably. And, you know, looking big picture, you know, the world is evolving and things are going to be different. I, I will say that right in today. I don't think we're there yet. I'll just say my personal experience, we picked up, I can think of three self-published books that had all sold at least in the five figures. So very successful self-published books. We took them in and did a factor of 10 increase using the marketing, using better distribution. So it's not, I mean, what you're pointing at, I think is where we're heading. I think we're not we're not there yet. Oh no, no, we're definitely not there. And also, it's not all one thing or the other. It's That's not right. like it's That's not right. going to be. This is about the ratio. There was always self publishing, right? There was self publishing fifty years ago. It just didn't sell any books, right? But there was such a thing as Vantage Press that would charge you whatever they would charge you to print up some books for yourself. And you're absolutely right that the self publishing world is a farm system, and that yes. smart and that smart publishers are looking at self-published efforts for opportunities where the self-publisher is not getting the full commercial value out of the project. But the problem is, there, let's, it, it, it's easy to, easier to see in genres. Let's take something like romance fiction, right? right? 
So publishers had a great business with romance fiction for years, but then authors discovered that they could get a large part of the market for themselves for $3.99 eBooks and that they would make more money on $3.99 eBooks that they sold themselves than they were making on $12 and $15 paperbacks that the publisher was selling. And then the publisher now, can't publisher can't sell eBooks at $3.99 and be in business. They have overhead. Right. So so they so so in what you're seeing, I believe, is that publishers are retreating from the genre fiction field. And it is being increasingly taken over by self-publishers or fledgling publishers that don't have overhead and can live in a in a low-priced world. Yeah. So what's happening is you start to see a shift of what works for publishers and what doesn't work for publishers and where's their farm system and where's their changed economics that make it very hard to do anything at all. Now, Mike, I think you're definitely seeing, I mean, that's definitely right. You're definitely seeing that. Right, so let's, let's talk about Amazon. And sometimes when I read your blog, it's almost like you feel Amazon is a natural monopoly, that unless somebody does something, they will basically just increasingly take over the entire book business. Is that how you see it? That's a little bit of an extreme, okay. extreme notion. No, what I see in Amazon is this is similar to the problem that I was describing for publishers earlier. Amazon's not trying to make money from the book business. Right. And that is an unfair advantage over everybody else who is trying to make money from the book business. So back in the 1990s, when Amazon was just starting, there are two tales that are worth retelling or recounting because of because they are uh, uh, instructive. One is that there was a when they first started, it was really on in- Ingram's back. Amazon, Jeff Bezos moved to Seattle because that put him two and a half hours from England, from Ingram's Rosemont, Oregon um, warehouse. Right. And what he knew was that any book that was in that warehouse, and he knew which books were in it because they had a microfiche, any book that was in that warehouse, if he ordered today, he would have it tomorrow. And if you ordered it from him, he'd be able to ship it tomorrow and you'd have it the day after tomorrow. So all the books that were in Ingram's warehouse, he could put on his website and say, you will have this in three days. And he didn't have to own the book. And not only did he not own the book, you paid him. He ordered it from him, from Ingram. Ingram shipped it to him. He shipped it to you. He kept the money. And 45 or 60 days later, he <laughs> right. had to pay Ingram. That's a nice deal. So, so not only did he not have to have any inventory, he didn't have to have any money in, uh, to, pay for, to pay for inventory. The inventory for him was cash flow positive. So that's how Amazon started. And um, and the the, the uh, but then Ingram found that that well Ingram suddenly said well wait a minute if Amazon can do this anybody can do this we're the ones doing this so right. Ingram formed something they called I squared S squared I two S two Ingram Internet Support Services and they went to every publisher and they said look we can but every bookseller you don't have to let Amazon take this business. We can handle this business. You can handle this business. We'll give you the database. You put it up online. People order the book. You tell us. We ship it to them with a box that has your name on it. And everybody, and you're in business. And Amazon right. at that moment cut their prices dramatically and took all the profit out of selling books. I did not know that. That's and so the, so the booksellers said, hey, I got a business to run here. I don't have time. <laughs> to sell books at no margin. Right. So they can have this crummy little direct marketing business, which is after all in 1998, 2% of the business or 3% of the business. It doesn't really matter. I got a bookshop, bookshop to run. So that was the first thing when Ingram just basically did this discounting. Now at about that same time, because the consciousness of the discounting thing was very slow as a matter of fact, it's still not completely appreciated that that they're not in this for profit, and that's why they have an unfair advantage, right? Um, but about that same time, there were a lot of publishers who were saying, "This is crazy. Why are we letting Ingram? I'm sorry, Amazon take this middleman position it, with the with the book with the public? We'll take the middleman position. We'll form a consortium of publishers, and in fact, uh, books online." was Barnes and Noble's initial attempt was a was a partnership with Bertelsmann 
people forget uh-huh. that. I didn't know they, that. Books, Barnes & Noble bought Bertelsmann out in about 2001 or 2002. Okay, so so the publishers thought, well, this should be our business. Okay, but the fact is they would never have been able to compete because the publishers would never have formed a book-selling consortium whose objective was to break even on unselling books and collect names and customers so they could sell them something else in right. the future. And because that was Amazon's game plan, they, no one could compete with them to sell books. Okay. So similarly, no one can, it's very hard to compete with them to publish books because they're not really trying to make money publishing books. They're trying to beef up their hegemony in the book field by having books that other people don't have, which makes them the first place to shop. Right. And all of this is um, very sensible from their point of view, but very hard to compete with if you're Barnes and Noble and very hard for a publisher to do much about in terms of leverage because Ingram's now, Amazon's now half your sales and you really have to just cooperate with whatever it is they want. Right. You know, I've noticed that Amazon has been creeping up the ebook prices and I'm wondering, you know, they probably have the the credit card number of pretty much every book buyer in America at this point. So I think they are starting to turn to a greater margin. Uh, the discounts do seem to be dropping to me. Yeah, well, I don't claim to be privy to Amazon's inside thinking. I really don't know. I have enormous respect for them. And um, and I do. I think that that I wouldn't call what they've done a necessarily a natural monopoly. But but they have they they have, uh, in my opinion, uh, legally and ethically built a built an engine which is naturally grows and grows and grows and which is very difficult to compete against if you want to be a profitable book publisher or a profitable bookseller because they are both a publisher and a bookseller with another model that doesn't require them to be profitable on each book that they that they sell so it's a it's a very tough situation my own hunch is that ultimately the government will decide that they can't be the bookseller they are and be a publisher too, that that is a, an integration which is threatening to free market economics. But, uh, but, but so far, of course, they haven't succeeded in publishing like they have in bookselling, partly because the rest of the world won't play. Barnes & Noble won't buy a book that's published by Amazon and put it on their shelves. Independent booksellers won't buy a book that's published by Amazon and put it on their shelves. So they had to abandon the notion of being general publishers, and they stick to areas where they can sell most of the books. And there are- But as their share grows, that becomes the, the cooperation of others is less and less needed. Yes. Yeah, well, as their as their share grows, it gets harder and harder for people to say no to whatever is the proposition they're putting forward. <laughs> right. So, what do you what are your predictions about Barnes and Noble? I don't see a happy end to this story. I think Barnes and Noble is is fighting two trends that will that will not stop. One is that more and more in for more and more people are getting their information from ebooks um, or they're reading from ebooks. I don't buy the idea that they've leveled off or, or slipped. I think that's a accident of who's keeping the records. I think that that commercial publishers have seen their ebook sales level off because they're still trying to sell ebooks for $10.99 and $13.99 and $16.99. But I think if you counted in all the ebooks that Amazon's selling at $1.99, $3.99, and $5.99 that aren't being counted by publishers because they're not they're not visible to publishers, right. you would find that ebooks are still growing. But the second thing that's even more important, and this will not stop, is that people, and it's not just books, People are buying more and more of what they buy online rather than stores. And that is not something that has to do particularly with books, although books are a prime example because there are, I think Ingram has 16 million titles in the Lightning database. So Ingram can deliver you any one of 16 million books (laughs) tomorrow without having a single copy on the shelf today, right? right? Okay. No store 
can can deal with, I mean, stores are getting smaller, not bigger, right? So the big store used to sell 150,000 titles when there were only 400,000 in print. That was impressive. And it was a big, big chunk of what was available. Now it's 100,000 titles out of 16 million in print. And the store doesn't sell 100,000 titles anymore. The successful independent stores are more like 10 or 20 or 25,000 titles. So the fact is, if you know what you want, you're crazy to go to a store to look for it because right. it, you'll go online, you'll find it, you'll have it in a day or two or three. Very, very few people need a book in the next five minutes. And if you do, you can get it as an ebook. If you do, you and if you do, you would get it as an ebook, right? That so 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 again, you're buying online. So Barnes and Noble, who is primarily a brick and mortar seller of print. That's what they are. That's where they have competitive advantage against everybody else. They're in a shrinking market and there will be less and less demand for print and there will be less and less likelihood that the person who wants print is going to go to a physical location to buy it. So, so why is Amazon opening up bookstores? Because Amazon has a supply chain that makes opening a small store they can sell you the book when you come online to buy it. They don't care whether it's sitting on a store shelf in Columbus Circle or a warehouse in New Jersey. They know where it is. And if you bought it and you want it, they can ship it to you from wherever it is. So so from their point of view, it's it's not all the inventory that is in their stores would necessarily have been in their possession if they didn't have the store, but not all the inventory that's in their store is there only because they have a store either. So So, their costs are inherently lower. they They have all sorts of competitive advantages, and they're not just selling books in those stores. They're selling prime memberships. They're sell, they're, so they're, they're um, reaching audiences to, to convert them. You know, when, when Nook started, it succeeded because in, in, in 2007, Amazon launched a Kindle. So everybody who was exposed to buying online was exposed to the Kindle and had a chance to buy the Kindle. Right. Okay. And Nook came out in 2008 or nine. There, that time, it's 10 years ago, there were still a lot of people who did, who bought a lot of books, but didn't shop online. They bought in stores. Right. And those people would not aware of the Kindle. So when they went into a, a Barnes and Noble store and they saw the Nook, this was a new thing and it was a good thing and it worked for them. So they bought it. So, so initially, they were in a world where there were, uh, there were uneducated book buyers who right. didn't know about buying online, and, and Barnes and & Noble could introduce the Nook to them. There, this does not exist anymore. There are, I mean, yeah, it does exist. I'm sure there's 10% or 20% or even 30% of the book buying market that just never goes online, but it's not enough to build a business on. Yeah, no, that's right. That's right. So it... Do you, so you feel like, so if you were made head of Barnes and Noble, do you feel like there's things you could do or you feel like they are just I would in manage, viable condition? I would manage them to take out the maximum amount of cash as I closed it down over a period of time, which is what I think they're actually doing. Oh, that's sad. Okay. <laughs> that, um, but having point. said that, I expect Barnes and Noble to be here three years from now. I don't, I don't, I don't expect, I don't expect what happened to borders to happen to them. I think that they, that they will, they, they have been shrinking. They have been shrinking the number of stores and they've been shrinking the amount of shelf space for books in the stores. And that will continue to happen, but they will still be a significant purchaser of books from publishers for the foreseeable future. Right. You know, thinking about Amazon getting into publishing. And, you know, the failures they've had because of distribution. But I, I do wonder if there's another factor, which is, you know, now I'm not talking about self-publishing, but actually publishing authors with advances and so on. It's a very time intensive, people intensive, messy business that doesn't seem to fit what Amazon does well, which are these economies of scale and leverage. I wonder if just it's not a great cultural fit for them being in I think that's right. And I think that their interest in publishing is probably very capable of being disposed of. Right? In other words, I don't think publishing per se interests them. I think that what publishing offered 
was a was a chance to be further disruptive in the in the book space and to get books that and I think that at the time remember they started out by hiring Larry Kirschbaum I remember that and who is a master at getting very very big books and working with very very big authors and I think that Amazon figured that if they could have you know three or five of the top 15 bestsellers were Amazon uh, books that that would uh, either give them exclusive that would drive more traffic to their website or would force the stores to start to accept Amazon books as part of what they would sell, even if though they didn't want to. And they saw that there were strategic reasons. It wasn't a matter of a little more margin or a little more profit. It was strategic. And I think they abandoned it because it didn't work strategically. What does work strategically is genre publishing, which right. they've doubled down on, which tends to need less of the kind of individual sculpting and handholding that you were talking about. It's a little more formulaic and a little more just drop it into the slot and it'll go. Um, but I think your 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 characterization is correct. They do they don't want things. Amazon is not designed to spend, have a lot of human effort invested in individual book projects. Right, right. So what do you, uh, what would you advise the, you know, big publishers or maybe the medium-sized publishers? What's the best way of thinking to be, to thrive in the next, you know, five to 10 years? Well, I think that there's a few things. One is that specialization really helps because what you need to do is you need to own some customers. You need to build lists and reach so that reaching end consumers is more efficient for you than it is for the guy down the street. And now, so the, the, the most obvious thing is, I don't know, if you publish books about, about revolution, the Revolutionary War in the United States, I'm picking a subject out of the right. year, and you manage to build a list of 75,000 people who are interested in books about the Revolutionary War, then when you find the long lost memoirs of Benedict Arnold and have a scoop, you have a way of reaching an audience that is virtually free that can launch the book. So that, that, now that's generally speaking, that's nonfiction, although it's also fiction, certainly romance, it's in genre fiction. Yeah, tour, you know, does. Yeah, tour. I remember I did a piece on tour, a blog post in around 2010 or 2011. And this was in the fall. And the prior month, Tor had sent out 600,000 emails. <laughs> right. Okay. Of which 200,000 had been opened, of which 40,000 people had taken an action, which they had asked them to take. Now, that's a, that's, that was almost 10 years ago, certainly more than five years ago. So you got to believe those numbers are multiples of that now. Well, that's very, very powerful. And the average person or a publisher that may be a very good publisher that doesn't have that kind of list is not going to be able to publish science fiction the way Tor is going to be able to do it. So I think that that in, I think that's really writ large. Not very many people are going to have email lists of millions. But on the other hand, it's building up that it's not so much that the, that the, the public needs to know you for what you do. You need to know the public one by one for what they do right. so that you can reach them through the websites they're at, through emails, et cetera, et cetera, that are cheap, that where you can hit them over and over again. And you need to publish in the areas that enabled you to use those lists. See, now in the nonfiction space, that inevitably drives you to going beyond books. You know, you look at like F&W, so now you're doing magazines, you're doing conferences for, you know, craft people or what have you. It's uh, it's almost like a mini version of the Amazon strategy that once you get that customer, you want to sell them more and more things because building that database of emails is expensive and maintaining it and, and all that. No, you're absolutely right. And, the, and, you're, and there is going to be, I think, events are going to be an inc of increasing interest to publishers for that reason. I think event management is a skill which is going to be able to be peddled to publishers. Um, right. But but even there, I mean, F&W did what they did, and I worked for them for, for I, Digital Book World was my baby, and I did it for seven years. 
even there, things don't last forever. Digital book, digital book world is trying again under new ownership, new management, and new vision this October. But my sus is that digital book world is something whose time has passed, that there was a period that started in the middle 1990s that is sort of over, where publishers are saying, holy smoke, this digital thing is important. I need to know more about it. Um, and we've gone from there to a period where publishers know a lot about yeah, it. It's and just the big part of the, it's just it's, book world now. It's, it's, exactly. It's part of what we all do. Um, there's no such thing as a book publisher with no digital consciousness. There, the big publishers have all hired people that have extensive experience with digital in various places. So the, so the, the, all of the reasons for having conferences and educational forums and so forth that were really powerful in the 90s and in the first decade of the century, and even up until maybe five years ago, really not as compelling anymore. And it's not, as you say, it's, it is not digital book world, it's book world. Right. And di digital is part of book world. And I think that's right. So let's talk a little about audio. I mean, I've been a huge fan of audio since the days you have to put the cassette tapes in and pop them out and put them back. But now it seems like everyone is getting into audio and it's exploding. Yes, that's right. Thoughts well, on that? Well, that's. I think that we can thank the iPhone for that primarily. Right. I think that audio and video have completely changed positioning in terms of technology and access. So... Um, in 1990, the simplest, easiest thing to create, store, and distribute was text. And anything that was more complicated than that was not text required additional steps. So a photograph would be on film. Right. You would have to convert the film to something that uh, first to half tones initially, right? So that so that you could distribute them some other way. Um, or and, and the 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 uh, video nobody had the bandwidth to deal with even even images bandwidth was was a problem right. in the beginning right but but also the creative part was was a challenge as well well we fast forward to now and and actually words are printed words are the hardest thing the easiest thing is for me to take out my cell phone record you audio or record you video and throw it up on Facebook and it's published. Right. And, right. and, and there's, and so, so there's a combination of ease of production and ease of distribution, which has changed the pecking order of things. Um, and as a, I'm not an audio consumer because I've always been a hearing challenge person. So it's not, although even that's changing with iPhones that are now connected to my hearing aid by Bluetooth so that the audio experience, I mean, Whenever I watch videos, I watch them on my phone because it's easier for me to get the audio through my phone than it is for me to get to hear things through the imperfect microphones of the hearing aid. Right, that's right? interesting. So, so, but the the uh, but it, now audiobooks would be totally accessible to me, whereas they would be very, would have been very clunky in the days where I would have had to wear a headset or earbuds, which I couldn't use because my hearing aids. Are plugging up my ears, already, right, right? Right. So, so all of these things are have have the technology has changed the pecking order of things, and now you're seeing, and you will see more and more audiobook originals where the words on on a flat screen. My terminology is words on a flat surface because that could be paper or a screen. Words on a flat surface are a step away from an audiobook. Necessary in certain cases. Well, particularly if, for example, I think the day will come that something like this podcast, you would have a transcript and people would have the choice of reading it or listening to it. And I think that that's going to become pretty much automatic and people will understand. Well, if it started as a podcast, the transcript will be a little bit imperfect, right? right? As just as they'll understand that if it started as a written thing and I'm using text to speech, that the speech is a little bit stilted compared to if it real human beings were That's talking, right? right? right. So, so where it originated will matter, but it will not be as confining as it used to be, where it took real production to move to another way of presenting the content. And now that it doesn't anymore, 
everything is much more ubiquitously available. And because audio was expensive and hard to produce and now is cheap and easy to produce, we're really seeing a difference in the amount of audio available. Right. And, and the flurry of podcasts and the tremendous success of podcasts has kind of trained the listener to be more tolerant of, you know, less than perfect audio in the sense that, you know, when you get a Stephen King audiobook, you know, the narration is excellent. It's perfect. Whereas in a podcast, it's more casual and there's more ums and ahs. And that's people are accepting that. Yeah. Well, I think that um, it's always been about the content. Right. I mean, it, it's much more important that this be something that I'm really interested in and something that I'm benefiting from receiving the information about. Yes. That That's m- more important than the form to most people. Now, there are certain minimum levels of delivery quality that are necessary. And something that isn't perfectly copy edited is one thing. Something where every fourth word is misspelled is another thing, right? <laughs> right. Um, something where the audio isn't perfect is one thing. Something where it drops out and you lose 10 seconds every now and then would be another thing. So so there's definitely our minimum standards of, of quality. But I think you're right that um, we're now, you know, it used to be that it didn't get to you unless it made it past the gatekeepers who enforced the quality. That's right. You didn't used to have the choice of listening to the slightly lesser quality thing that was more about the subject that you were more interested in because it never got to you. Now everything can get to you. And I think that's another thing that created the change. No, that makes a lot of sense. I'm just going to read a quote from you that you put on your blog. You say, There's no sort of Damocles, but it's fair to say that the publishing business just keeps getting a little bit harder day by day. Now, someone in publishing, that almost sounds optimistic because we felt the sort of Damocles was about to fall. Do you feel like things have stabilized a bit or do you think there are some very dramatic upsets ahead? Well, there definitely are some step increments ahead. I mean, there there will be the day that Barnes & Noble says that we're closing half the stores right. or whatever it is, right? And there will be the day when one of the big six buys another of the a big five, one of the big five buys another of the big five, or there will be the day that one of the big five announces that it's no longer going to maintain its own warehouse and all of the sales organization that it has, but it's going to offer that to one of their competitors or do it with Ingram or do it some other way. So, So there's definitely going to be we're, we're not done with major changes. And I, and I do think that if you look, I don't know, 10 or 15 years from now, it's hard for me to see five major publishers competing for the big books. It seems to me there would be one or maybe two. But, you know, that, it, that, that's, that's not next month. And it's something about, you know, which ha- will happen over a period of time, so it won't seem so sudden when it happens, and it won't all be in one fell swoop. But we are headed for a world where I think we are going to see, unless the government does something about it, Amazon creating dozens and dozens and dozens or hundreds and hundreds and hundreds or thousands and thousands and thousands of little bookstores or places where books are on sale alongside of other things and make it harder and more and more of a kind of a specialist thing for somebody to have a bookstore that isn't that, that isn't purely utilitarian and driven by algorithms. And that will have happened because more and more of the books will be bought online as everything else is being bought online. One of the things that I really see, and I, I don't think about the book business per se, but I live in a doorman building in New York City. And in the last five years, the doorman's job is completely changed. Huh. They are logging in. There are 100, I would say 100 units in our building. There are hundreds of packages coming in every day. Oh, of course. The package room, it, which used to be virtually emptied, is now virtually full. The doorman job of where he has to log in each of these things, because I get an email, you know, it's a system, building as a system. They right. log in the package, they put it in the system. I get an email that tells me there's a package for me. It used to be something that happened once a week. Now it's three times a day or twice a day with all the various things that get delivered. 
So you just see this and you see, and the other thing that I'm seeing, which we're seeing all over the country, is empty storefronts, right? right? And they're everywhere. And my local Democratic club has had a meeting, a specific exploration of all the empty storefronts. And we're talking about midtown Manhattan here. We're talking about the center of foot traffic and commerce, um, let alone these malls that lose an anchor store or two or three key stores, and then suddenly they're deserted. So we're seeing some big changes that are not all about book publishing, but right. but we live in a we live in a world that we share with a lot <laughs> of right. a lot of other a lot of other industries and things, and all of that is changing. So I don't think we're out of the woods. Do you think that the publishers understand the situation, or do you feel like they're in some denial? Well, that's a really hard question to answer because there's a lot of publishers in the world. That's right. I I think I think that people in jobs are seldom incented to take a long view. And they are, most big companies report to shareholders in some way on a quarterly basis. Most employees are reviewed on an annual or semi-annual basis. Very, very few employees have a five or 10 year window on their jobs. So they, they people just don't think that way anymore. Um, and actually, that's another case place where Ingram is uh, really different from almost anybody else in that they sort of celebrate their five and 10 year employees and they have a, you know, it's a it's a it's still a family business. That's not true in most situations. You're right. right? And in fact, light Ingram did lightning, which is a which is a core element of their business where they can print one of any one of 16 million books. It took seven years for Lightning to become profitable. There's no corporation reporting quarterly that can take seven years to develop an, an investment initiative before it becomes profitable. So, so I think that, that, that I wouldn't say that the, that the employees of publishers are in denial. Um, I think that most of them, if you said, what do you think is going to be the situation five or 10 years from now, would recognize that it's going to be pretty drastically different. But I don't think that most of them think that that matters much in their day-to-day job. They have to get the advance on the spring list, right? right? And if that's harder because three stores that they were counting on to take 20 copies each have just gone out of business, then that's the way it is. And you got to figure out a way to get past that uh, and find a few other stores to take some additional copies. But that's how that's how people think and that's how they work. Um, and I think that even at the management level, people are, you know, know how many years it is till their retirement. And they're not really thinking about what the corporation's going to be, where the corporation's going to be five years after they're gone. That's very interesting. And I, I find it fascinating what you say about Ingram and the long-term employees, because I think big, I mean, one of the things that, you know, I went through when I went to business school and you know, all the business reading I did since then, it's all about, well, people used to stay in a job, you know, for their whole career or maybe two jobs in a career. And now every 18 months or two years are going to shift jobs. And we talked about that like that was just a given. But it's actually very problematic and very disruptive. And I'll say at Ben Bella in our tiny little firm, you know, we've even our more junior people have been around five years. It's having that. And there's tremendous advantages to creating an environment where people don't have to move to get a raise don't have to move if they if they have to deal with some issue that's bothering them, to have a real environment that people are going to stay, that has huge benefits to the firm. And I, I know a lot, I have a lot of authors that came from other publishers who were like, I was orphaned, my editor left, like, things keep turning over. And I think, I feel like we don't take that seriously enough as an issue. Well, I think that you're, you're definitely right that there are circumstances, and Ben Bella's obviously one, where the value of the long-term relationships is 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 tangible and commercial and real. The fact that you're an exception doesn't change the reality. No, you're right. Right? But it still doesn't make you the rule. And I think that in general, that most, many companies say, well, look, well, Random House just offered a buyout to any employee over 60 who's been with the company for more than 10 years or something. That was announced yesterday. I saw right? that. And that's because 
they're seeing that they got people making $130,000 a year, that two people making $40,000 a year could more than replace in their eyes. You know, there's another thing. They're probably doing fewer titles. This is, a, this is something that's also changed. When I was a kid in the business, one of the, one of the ways to tell somebody who really did not understand the economics of publishing is they would say, we're going to do fewer books and make more money. And that, because it was just not true. And, and until, until about 1995 or 2000, maybe 2005, every big house made some cash on almost every book they published because big houses always sold a couple thousand copies of right. just about everything they did. So if you didn't print stupid and you didn't pay a ridiculous advance, you might not have made the 40% that you figured was what the overhead is that every book has to make in order to be profitable, but you made something. And in fact, my dad used to encourage an exercise where they'd say to a publisher, okay, you say the book's not profitable unless you make 40%. Well, here's my suggestion. Go back and look at all the books you did last year and take out the books that didn't make 40%. They made five. They made eight. They made 14, 22. Take those out. Imagine you didn't publish them. Redo your numbers. What do you find out? You lost your shirt. Right. Because the total volume that was done on the ones that made 40% wasn't enough to run a business on, <laughs> right. right? Okay, so so now this is no longer true. Because the environment has become so competitive that their big publishers can do a book and only sell 125 copies. And no matter how you do the math, you're losing money if you only sell 125 copies. So it is no longer true that the more books you publish, the more money you'll make, which was the case for many, many years. So publishers now can very intelligently say that, you know, we did 100 books last year. This year we're doing 85 and we're going to do just as well or we're going to do better or we're going to do better than if we tried to do 100 and did 15 books that were crappy that lost money. So so that is something that's changed uh, not just in my lifetime, in my recent lifetime. Right. But of course, a lot depends on your ability to pick the 20 books that were the wrong books to acquire. Yes. Well, that's yeah. always part of it. Yeah. Right. I mean, it, there's no question that Picking the right books is, 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 that's a requirement that does not change. Right. Right. Well, you know, I, I was very much influenced by your posts about, because I could feel the tremendous urge to do fewer books. We're going to do them better. We're going to do bigger books. And that is a, a powerful psychological force that unless you do the math, you, you know, can't overwhelm you. So, yes, I think that's right. And, 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 and the, it's more gratifying to be able to spend more time and do more on a book. But the other thing it does is escalate risk because every book you do presents the possibility of that book hitting the jackpot. And if you do enough books, some books hit the jackpot that you didn't think were going to hit the jackpot. And that might have been the one you didn't do if you were a little more careful. So right. you have to be careful what you wish for there. That's right. That's right. And there is so much unpredictability, you know, yeah. black swan quality to exactly. this business. What, uh, so if you had a, a friend, let's say, whose son wanted to start a publishing business or whose daughter wanted to start a publishing business, would you say, I'm going to talk you out of it? Or would you say, if you do it, you ought to do it this way? I think starting a standalone book publishing business that is not anchored to some other organization or objective or product possibility. I think that's a real long shot. And I've made a career of not telling people what to do, um, <laughs> uh, but telling people what I think, yes. and what I see, because I think that the that circumstances are highly individual and people's talents are highly individual. And I just don't really want the responsibility. Of course. Uh, right? But but I would say that it's it is a very heavy, cha hard challenge to make a living as a standalone book publisher, and it's not going to get easier over the next 20 years. So it's a little bit like opening a blacksmith shop in 1925. <laughs> and there are still some, right? right? I mean, they haven't completely, there are still horses, they still need horseshoes, but it's not a growth industry.
Right, right. The one thing I will say is, you know, as the big publishers get more cautious and consolidate, there are, I, I feel like the world has tilted toward a more flexible, smaller publisher who's willing to be more innovative. So yes. sometimes in a sh- flat market where things are consolidating, you know, if you're flexible and entrepreneurial enough, there can be opportunities, but it, it isn't easy. No, I think that's absolutely right. And I think that I think that the big publishers have become structurally more and more risk averse. Right. And they keep looking for a more and more consensus about about what they do. And so an editor doesn't bring it in and have a vision and just do it. An editor has to consult their colleagues. If the bit if the buy is big enough, they have to consult the sales department and the marketing department and the digital marketers, and everybody gets a piece of the decision. And if you can't and if you can't bandwagon in it enough in the house, it gets shot down. Whereas a a single publisher with a vision and the ability to manage their own organization can see opportunities. And um, as we've talked about in certain other cases, specific cases where you can see something that many big publishers won't necessarily see. So. I think that that I think that's right. I think that the change always fa- favors flexibility, and it is always hardest for the for the bureaucracies. And big publishers are very big, and they're very bureaucratic. Right. So I understand you have got an upcoming book, which hopefully we'll talk about more in the future on publishing. Uh, you just want to say a word about that? Yes, I'm very excited about it. Uh, although also in a way sad about it. I co-authored a book with. Um, a dear friend named Robert Rieger, who was quite a prodigy. He was head of Book of the Month Club and Literary Guild before he was 30. Wow. He ran Pimsler language programs. He ran Spark Notes for Barnes & Noble. He did a lot of things in his career. And he and I wrote for Oxford University Press for their Everything You Need to Know series, a book on book publishing. And we turned the manuscript in in December. And unfortunately, Robert died in January. Mm-hmm. So... We had a wonderful time writing the book together. He was a fantastic guy. He left me to deal with the editing of the galleys and so <laughs> forth, which I've done. I'm looking forward to publishing in February. I'm only sorry I won't get to promote it with Robert, which would have been a lot of fun. Right. But I think it will be a useful book for a lot of people. Okay, wonderful. Well, Mike, thank you so much for making the time. It's really been a pleasure to talk to you. My pleasure, Glenn. Thank you for listening to the Building Books podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review on iTunes or wherever you happen to listen to it, or share it on social media. If you're an author who wants to submit a proposal or pitch to Ben Bella Books, please go to benbellabooks.com, click on the Four Perspective Authors button, and I'll lead you through a little form that makes it real easy to submit to us. Thank you.